uh, then close with the loving-kindness meditation. So it's just about four o'clock now. And uh, so we'll see how that plays out. Are you okay with continuing on right now with that other break before we go? And, you know, if you have an urgent need, if nature is calling very loudly, you can always slip out. Um, but, uh, you know, to complete this topic of the day, uh, the four truths of recovery, as we're calling them, um, let me just touch on at least the, the third noble truth, because uh, I didn't explicitly talk about that, but, uh, but uh, we've alluded to it, the fact that um, when we see that suffering is caused by clinging, by craving, that, we, that if we understand the process of cause and effect, we realize that if suffering is caused by craving and clinging, then it can end when we cease clinging and craving. And this corresponds to, I think, corresponds to the second step that says we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. That is to say, it, the third noble truth and the second step both tell us that there is a possibility of change. We've uh, defined the problem uh, and, and its cause, and now we see that it's possible to change, which is a, a vital stage, because it's not uncommon for people to have the insight into their problem but, but feel a sense of despair. And particularly if someone's relapsed a lot. Um, but if you've been stuck in a particular pattern for a long time, there can be a sense that it's, it's not going to be possible to change. So this, this third noble truth is, is giving us hope. Um, if karma creates addiction, then karma can uncreate addiction. That's the the basis of this idea. And so then, the, the fourth noble truth, then, the way to the end of suffering, is the path that the Buddha delineates. And the way I like to think of it is that this is the way to let go. This is what helps us to let go. Cultivating these qualities, living by these uh, truths or guidelines. We could say that the Eightfold Path also, um, when, when applied to addiction, is a kind of uh, step path as well, one that can be used both as a guide to breaking addiction and a guide to maintaining recovery. So there, it's not necessarily a linear process, but I'll talk about it somewhat in linear terms particularly the beginning of the Eightfold Path, which traditionally uh, begins with what's called right view or right understanding. And in right view means that we see the problem, 
we see its cause, and we see how to end it. Which means essentially, right view sees the Four Noble Truths. So there's a way in which it's kind of looping back. But we can understand that in order to start any kind of process of change, we have to see the problem clearly. We've talked about this already today. So right view is kind of to see clearly. And this is, of course, what mindfulness is about, is seeing clearly. The mindfulness meditation comes out of the Vipassana um, meditation tradition, and Vipassana means to see clearly. I'll say also that, well, right view is the beginning of the path, it's also, its fulfillment is the end of the path. When one has perfect right view, it means that really you're enlightened. But the beginning of right view is when we hear the truth, or we hear the Dharma, and we get it. So if someone says, everything is impermanent, and you say, no, that's not true. What do you mean? Some things are, look at, you know, this mountainside, this is permanent. This building is permanent. Then that's called wrong view. It's delusion. It's not under- if you hear everything is constantly changing, everything is impermanent, you go, right, yes. Then you have right view in that moment. So uh, the fact that you're here means that some part of you is resonating with the Dharma, with the truth, that, that there's some aspect of right view that you already have. Whatever draws you to uh, the Dharma is, is your right view. And so we're always trying to cultivate and, and expand our view so we more, develop more and more wisdom. We can call right view a, a kind of wisdom. Now the second aspect of the Eightfold Path is right intention. So when we have right view, that's great. We see how things are, but we haven't done anything yet. Um, you know, right view inspires us to change. Oh, right, this is not working. I need I need to change. I've got a problem. This is painful. I'm seeing suffering. Um, and I see that this path is, is really going to work. So we set our intention to change. Now, in one of the Buddhist texts, the Buddha says, karma is intention. This was like kind of a, another one of his kind of very surprising statements. And one of the things the Buddha did was he took traditional teachings and turned them in his own way to have, bring his own special meaning to them. So karma just means action. The word karma means action. The law of karma is that actions bring results. But the Buddha kind of takes it one step further back and says that your intention behind your action is what conditions the results of the action. So you could, if we look at, at karma, and one of the ways I was asked about this during one of the breaks, the way I talk about karma, one of the things that I really emphasize about karma is what I would call internal karma, our emotional karma, what happens to us when we take an action, the, the emotional response. So let me give an example of how intention could inform this. Let's say you're putting money into the Donna basket, and you walk by and you think, oh, I really am 
appreciated what Kevin taught today and I really want to be generous. And you put in a certain amount of money. And you walk away and there's a feeling of uh, enjoyment. There was pleasure in, in looking forward to giving. There was pleasure in the giving. And as you walk away, there's a, an afterglow, an after effect that's positive. So the intent, but that positive, all the positive experience was all conditioned by the fact that your intention was to give something out of appreciation. Another person might give the same amount of money and think, oh, well, I'm supposed to stick something in here. And, you know, if I walk by here and people see I don't give something, they're going to think I'm some kind of a jerk, so I'll just toss something in. Boom. You know, the intention completely different. You know, kind of self-centered, you know, uh, egotistic, and, and really not generous, not really caring. Same action, but different karmic results in terms of the internal karmic result. So this is one of the reasons why being mindful of intention is so important. We can think that we are doing an action out of the kindness of our heart, but not see that there's a selfish motivation behind it. In the same way we can think, oh, this is kind of selfish, but actually we're doing something generous. It can go either way. And, and so intention is so important. Um, this is just, that was just one example, but I think if you start to watch your intention, you see that ultimately, I, I think really the way our life unfolds is so much dependent upon the intention behind our, our actions. What's the direction of your life? Where do you want your life to go? Is, it, is your core value spiritual growth or is it material acquisition? Is your core value sensual pleasure or is it service? So this is vital because action after action is conditioned by this intention. And over time, action piles upon action and karma unfolds and here's your life. And if you look at your life today, the way it is, is a result of your past intentions. Good or bad. Again, in terms of perfection, we can get into the same perfectionism. Oh, well, there's a little bit of selfishness. Even when I gave that money, I was thinking, well, maybe this will bring good karma. Fine. I mean, you know, if you get into trying to have perfect intention, you're just going to be beating yourself up. I think perhaps for all but the fully enlightened, all intentions are mixed. So we, if we can just try to highlight and uh, as much as possible follow the positive intentions, acknowledging that there's usually going to be some, you know, as long as there's an ego, there's going to be some ego intention. Well, that's fine. And it's another way that we practice forgiveness, compassion, and kind of open-mindedness. This is the way things are. Let's not make things any harder for ourselves than they need to be. I often, relatively often, get emails from parents about their addict children. 
and asking what they should do. And, um, you know, I'll make this suggestion and that suggestion, but usually I end by saying, you know, it's really up to them. Your intention isn't their intention. You can't give someone your intention. We'd love to, right? If we could, if we only could give our wise intention to our children. So there's a, you know, a letting go in that, but just really seeing that. And, and just to make one more connection, intention is tied in with motivation. Motivation and intention are essentially synonyms. So uh, when I was talking about recovery and about the importance of recovery, of, of motivation in recovery, this is right at the heart of it. So these first two aspects of the Eightfold Path, right view and right intention, are called the, the wisdom aspects. The next three are called the morality aspects. We can talk about them in less black and white terms as kind of the lifestyle or living uh, steps, stages. First one is right speech. You've just been doing a formal exercise around right speech and seeing that, how with your full focus on trying to speak mindfully, how difficult that is, how difficult it is to be skillful with our speech and how powerful it is, how powerful it is to speak, how powerful it is to listen, how central to our lives relationship is. So right speech is really about relationship. The 12-step programs, the foundation of them is fellowship, is relationship, is communication. The Buddhist Sangha, uh, this is one of the three jewels, Buddha, Dharma, Sangha. Sangha is the fellowship of the community in the Buddhist world. Uh, the Buddha designed the monastic tradition to, or the monastic lifestyle to be dependent upon the lay community. He didn't set it up so the monks could just go off and live alone behind uh, the walls of the monastery. No, because the monks can't cultivate food, they can't have money, they can't keep food overnight. They are totally dependent upon the lay community to come and take care of them. Well, this has a lot of beneficial results. It keeps the monks honest, it keeps them involved in service, so they're not just practicing for themselves. Um, and, it, and it keeps this flow of energy, of give and take. It keeps the, the generosity. Uh, it gives the lay community continuous opportunity for generosity. Uh, but you know, when people get so- sober, clean and sober, once they take care of the immediate problems, probably the biggest issue for people is relationship, both intimate relationship, friend relationships, work relationships, all of that. So uh, cultivating right speech and learning wise ways of interacting is fundamental to the uh, recovery process and to all spiritual growth. We don't do it alone. Um, you know, the image of the, the individual in our culture is so overemphasized and it's so delusive. The idea that somehow you're going to be, you know, the... the out on the frontier alone, you know, and, and you're going to get enlightened alone on the top of the mountain. Just, it's just not really uh, how life works. We need teachers, we need uh, 
support. Our lives are so intertwined with each other. You know, here you are sitting in this hall that was built by people you've never met. That was, uh, you know, the money for it, the wood that was, the people who worked in the forests, the carpenters, the history of human architecture. (laughs) How far back does that go? Uh, the history of human plumbing, you know, the things that we depend on, we're so dependent upon each other, but we have this delusion of independence. Moving right along. The, the next stage of the Eightfold Path is the right, called right action. And this is the five precepts of non-harming. And the precepts include to not use intoxicants, to not harm others with our sexuality, Two of the main ways that our addiction is expressed. To not steal, to not lie, to not kill. And fundamentally, to live with a heart of loving kindness, to live with compassion and caring, to have this idea that my relationship to the world is not one of having to acquire things from it, but rather to engage the world with an open heart in a way that's appropriate and non-harming to myself as well. Um, it's interesting that in the, fi- in the five precepts, right speech comes up again. So uh, it really points to how important speech is in, in our uh, whole spiritual growth. Um, The precepts are a spiritual practice. They sound like a set of rules, and they're not presented that way in the teachings. They're presented as practices or as trainings. And we find that simply by following the single precept of not using intoxicants, we can completely change our lives, completely change the direction of our lives. And that really points to the power of the precepts. You know, we typically think about spiritual practice as being something kind of... uh, ethereal and, oh, I'm going to meditate or I'm going to do yoga or do some kind of cleansing thing that's uh, so uh, just magical in some way. Spiritual, spirituality has many dimensions. Uh, to me, my sobriety is a spiritual state. And it's not... It, even when... If I... You know, if they came out with the pill that meant you could drink and you wouldn't be drink alcoholically anymore, I, I would I wouldn't take it because to me there's a a value in the purity, the innocence of not drinking and using. It's not uh, it's a practice in and of itself. So I really encourage you to look at the precepts or look at your own spiritual values or or moral values and and what's important to you. Uh, That again, when we practice these, when we practice these kind of limitations, the same way that I talked about the the monks not eating afternoon, when we put limitations intentionally on our behavior, we come up against our craving. We come up against our aversion, our preferences, 
and we get to see, then we get to practice letting go. Oh, look at that. Mm, you know, that craving. Oh, you know, you're married, but you want to sleep with someone else. Oh, wow, look at that desire. Look what that's doing, how that's affecting me. Look at the suffering in that. You know, uh, this is how we, uh, how we do our practice, just in the same way that just sitting down and not moving creates a tension that allows us to see our own minds more clearly. When we're not acting on every impulse, we get to look at the impulse, and we get to then practice letting go of the impulse and undermine the power of that. Uh, the next aspect of the Eightfold Path is, is right livelihood. And uh, one of the things that I value so much about the Dharma is that it doesn't exclude any aspect of my life. And I think, again, this, it shares that with the 12 steps in recovery, that uh, when I go to work, I don't get to stop being mindful. I might forget, but I don't, <laughs> you know, that's not uh, on the agenda. My work and my relationship to my work, my intention behind my work, which is probably the most important thing, are vital parts of my path. And this doesn't mean that everybody has to be a yoga teacher or you know, a, a psychotherapist or a dharma teacher. It's not so much, again, the action as the intention behind it. I, I saw this when I was working as a technical writer, which I did for about 10 years. At some point, I thought I was looking at right livelihood, and I thought, well, what's what's the right livelihood in this? This seems kind of uh, it's so dry, and I'm just writing these technical manuals, user manuals for people. I, it, it, I was able to see that well, what I'm creating is something that's helping someone else to do their work. So if I think of it as service, then it becomes uh, it becomes service, and it is service. Of course, it's service. And, and, and that led me on to a further contemplation that really the way civilization is set up, all work is service for somebody. Right? It's, you know, other than things that we do that are basically illegal or immoral, uh, you know, most, most people's work is, of, is service. It's helping, it's helping hold together a community in one way or another whether you're working for PG&E or the government or uh, you know, you're working in a store. Everything is just helping each other. And it's so funny that we all think the world revolves around us. And so we think that our job is about getting enough money so that we're okay. And of course, it's about that. But if we look at ourselves in the larger context, it's not about that at all. We're just cogs in this system that's running, that's helping the world to, to go along, to run. And what direction is it running? Well, that's up to us in terms of the, the livelihood we choose and the intention behind that. I think it's helpful to connect with that just for the heart, to see, oh yeah, it's, it's good what I'm doing. It's, I'm bringing something to the world. So the last three aspects of the Eightfold Path are considered the meditative aspects, although they can, they're certainly used outside the formal meditation. Right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Effort, as you've seen today, is very challenging. How to, how to make effort, it's really the middle way. How to make an effort without grasping or without 
just getting lazy. Joseph Goldstein says, we want to be relaxed in our practice, but not casual. I heard that. I was, I was listening to a, one of his talks while I was doing a self-retreat uh, in, uh, when was it? May. I think. It could have been April. Time passes. Um, and I thought, oh, that's me. Because I've worked very hard at being relaxed in my practice. Because when I first practiced, I really was trying to do it right and be the good meditator. And I, when I found the suffering in that, I kind of learned to back off and back off and back off. And I've gotten kind of casual in my practice. Okay, that's interesting. So to really notice, are you striving in your practice? Or are you just like letting it all happen, hanging loose? Can you find that place in between? It's really... Paralleled by the posture, when I talk about posture, to sit you know, with, uh, in an open, energetic way, without being rigid, but without slumping. The body is actually a reflection of, the, of that internal experience. Very, very difficult, and, and because everything is impermanent, you don't arrive at right effort and stay there. And this is, again, a place where you bring mindfulness and watch your effort moment by moment. In the beginning of a sitting, you might kind of raise your effort, kind of make a little more effort to kind of get, get here, and then you might kind of pull back a little bit, and then you might find yourself falling asleep and go, oh, I need to increase the effort a little bit. Oh, oh now I'm getting a little tense or I'm getting agitated. Okay, let me soften a little bit. So it's a dance. Uh, the, the Buddha compared it to tuning a lute. You know, if the string is too tight, tight, yeah, it's sharp. Loose, getting in in between, just right. It's kind of the uh, Goldilocks practice. You know? <laughs> and then, right mindfulness. Well, we've talked about mindfulness and certainly, certainly referred to it today. Um, mindfulness is really considered the heart of Buddhist meditation. Um, and uh, it it can be explored and studied in so many ways. This wonderful book, if, you're, if you have any sort of academic inclination, much more than academic, but this is uh, pretty um, serious stuff. This book, Satipatthana, is, is now kind of considered the Bible, if you will, of mindfulness, uh, published a couple years ago by a young monk and... Um, Satipatthana means the, usually translated as four foundations of mindfulness. So it's the name of of the core sutta or core discourse that the Buddha gave on mindfulness. And you know it's interesting because mindfulness has become sort of popularized in our culture and how it's become simplified. You read this and all of a sudden you're like, whoa! This is the layers and the complexity of it uh, can be overwhelming. But um, really. Um, there's a lot to explore in it. It's, we see, though, that fundamentally, mindfulness is so tied with right view. And right view, in a sense, is right mindfulness. They're very closely tied. That, that being able to see things clearly to understand your experience moment by moment is the starting point and in some ways the end point of practice. 
We can't get anywhere unless we can see clearly. To do that, then, takes a, a, a set of, um, kind of skills, the quality of acceptance, of openness, quality of patience to sit with things, the quality of investigation, to look closely, to not just accept, oh yeah, breathing in, breathing out. I mean, the breath can be, yeah, I'm breathing in, I'm breathing out, or it can be every little split second of a breath can be observed as the mind becomes more and more and more mindful and concentrated. So there are many levels of mindfulness. Mindfulness in itself is healing. To just be present allows a softening. In itself, it opens us to loving kindness. The heart just opens when we're present. In itself, it cultivates what are called the factors of enlightenment. Energy and joy, tranquility, equanimity, investigation. All of these qualities, just, just by being present. It's so, so powerful. Certainly, I consider mindfulness to be one of the core higher powers um, of the Dharma. You know, someone asked right before lunch about higher power. It looks like I've managed to avoid dealing with that topic, which is very skillful on my part. But I will say that as I talk about in Burning Desire, that each of these elements of the Eightfold Path is a power, or contains power, or is powerful, however you want to view it. And in that sense, can be viewed as a higher power. And certainly karma, which uh, to understand that karma is behind the Eightfold Path. It's cultivating each of these qualities, taking the action of, these, of, these, of the Eightfold Path is what allows us to let go, what allows for freedom. So that's a karmic cause and effect. If it weren't for the law of karma, if it weren't true that actions brought results, then the Eightfold Path wouldn't do anything. This is one of the things the Buddha said. I mean, it's sort of obvious, but, but because there are belief systems, like fatalistic belief systems, is one of the things he confronted in his time, in which we confront in our time, that some people believe that everything is just meant to be. And it's just all been written before. And, and we're, it's all just fate. Well, the Buddha said, if that were true, I wouldn't teach you this path. It's not true. You can change. You can change yourself. You can come to freedom. You can get sober, right? So cause and effect. And then the, the eighth factor of the Eightfold Path is right concentration. Concentration is tied up with, with meditation, clearly. Um, when we sit down and try to follow the breath and the mind just spins off, it's because we haven't cultivated any concentration. Um, without concentration, it's very difficult to maintain mindfulness. Continuous mindfulness is dependent upon the development of concentration. 
deepening mindfulness is dependent upon deepening concentration. This is why people come on intensive retreats, why people come on residential retreats, because when you are in silence and sitting in stillness for long periods of time, these qualities deepen and deepen and deepen. And the, it's very hard to say what, if there are any limits to how deep these things can go. Uh, certainly people sit uh, for long retreats, for months and months sometimes, for years, uh, because they find layers and layers unfolding, layers of insight that, that arise out of these states. Um, in, a, in a more practical sense in our daily lives, uh, the uh, cultivation and commitment to concentration is something that we can apply to things like our relationship to the computer or the telephone or the cell phone, um, to uh, our um, just steadiness of action, to, stay, to follow through on actions. So easy to just kind of, oh, yeah, right, oh, sorry, yeah, right, sorry. You know, one of the things that I observe somewhat uh, with bemusement is uh, the person be at the checkout counter, uh, the checker in the, in the grocery store, how uh, watch next time if they are able to stay with one person's order without being interrupted by either the phone or some other person or just something gets distracted, you know, that they can't actually just do what's in front of them. I mean, it's, many times it's not their fault, but it's just this, this is kind of the way our culture is, constantly interrupted. It's like that um, knock-knock joke about the interrupting cow, you know? <laughs> You've heard that one, right? Knock-knock. Interrupting cow. Hoo-boo! So anyway, sorry. Yeah, I don't know if I did that properly, but it was something like that. Group knock-knocks. So, uh, you know, there, there's hardly time for us to finish one thing before we jump on to the, uh, the next thing. Uh, and something is being lost, as we know. I mean, attention deficit disorder could also be called concentration deficit disorder. And the cure for it is called mindfulness and concentration. And I very strongly believe that many cases, I'm sure there are cases which are much more uh, stubborn and really pathological, but I think that many cases of, of attention deficit could be cured by simply working with mindfulness. Um, Easy to say, don't know if it's true. So this is the Eightfold Path, and these, they they aren't really separate, and they aren't really linear. This is just a way of looking at them. They're all interacting together. I mean, we could say that right now, you're sitting here, and the fact that you're here is an expression of right view and right intention. And you are acting out right action. Um, by being silent and listening to me, you're 
practicing right speech, appropriate speech right now. <laughs> and you are making an effort to, to just stay present. You're trying to be mindful. You're trying to focus. So you're, the Eightfold Path is being expressed right here, right now, and in uh, very real ways. These are powerful. Uh, each of these individual aspects is powerful and transforming. Together, they are supremely powerful and, and uh, can bring us to enlightenment, whatever that is. So, that um, fulfills my responsibilities. <laughs> Having uh, said that I was going to teach about the Four Noble Truths, there's always more that could be said. Um, so I'd like to close with uh, a few minutes of loving-kindness practice, but I see a hand, yes. Can we ask a question? Sure, absolutely. Well, I would say yes and no. <laughs> that, uh, you know, it, it again comes back to motivation and intention. If you really want, want it, but um, there's something about the admission of powerlessness or the admission, I'm an alcoholic, that uh, hitting bottom, that the 12 step programs encourage, that seems really vital in a way. And there's no doubt that the community, the fellowship, is also supportive in a way that a sangha of people who don't understand you <laughs> and don't understand your disease can't really do for you. So I would certainly say that if you practice the Eightfold Path, yeah. But if you are, pra if you are trying to use Buddhism because you don't want to go to AA, which is what I hear from people a lot who, who are kind of coming from that. They'll be like, oh, is there a Buddhist, Buddhist program? Or, you know, I, I, those AA meetings don't really work for me. Whatever that means, I, they don't work for me. In other words, I don't like them is what it means. Um, so I'm really interested in using Buddhism as my, for recovery. Then what I hear in that is aversion, <laughs> which means you're already not being Buddhist, you know, strictly speaking. And uh, trying to find the easier, softer way, basically. Um, but as I say, sure, if you practice the Eightfold Path in an authentic way, it says not to drink, so right away you, it's working. And, and certainly, obviously, I see many parallels with the, eight, with the 12 steps and, and all of that. It's just about how does it actually play out. 
That's the question. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I'm assuming that, you know, for me, the Buddhism is an excellent, excellent compliment. But it's, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's an excellent compliment, but it's not all I, I rely on. Yeah. You know, uh, there is this organization I'm part of called Buddhist Recovery Network. And there are meetings now that are kind of Buddhist recovery meetings that take, can take all kinds of different forms. I mean, the Zen Center's been having one for a long time. Uh, in San Francisco on Monday nights. And for, for there to be a real, for people to really use Buddhism as a recovery program, I, the only way I could see that really working is if something like that was really widespread and, and people were really living it and helping each other to do it. And it was, it was really uh, practiced in a, in a way that um, because Buddhism isn't a recovery program, you know, but it was practiced as a recovery program. And this is something Noah Levine is working on a book that's like The Four Truths of Recovery. I think it might even have that title. I mean, I kind of took that from him. I had, I had his permission, but... Uh, but um, you know, and he and I have kind of debated back and forth this very question, and... Uh, you know, we shall see. All right, so let's just do a, a little bit of loving kindness practice before we go. Thank you so much for sharing this day with me. It's really a delight. I hope I will see you all as we trudge the road of happy destiny. <laughs> <laughs>